Coming up on the very first episode of Wheelhouse, we discuss stupid NHL rules, outdoor hockey, and why NHL goaltending kind of sort of sucks these days. I'm your friend and host, Jeff Fox. This is Wheelhouse Hockey. I guess that's what I'm saying, Brooksy. You get that through your head? I promise not, I wouldn't do it. That's a hockey, you know, it's only, it's only game. Well, how are you doing today? I hope whatever you're doing, wherever you are, I hope you're killing it. As I said off the top of the show, my name is Jeff Volks. This is Wheelhouse, a hockey show by a hockey guy, presumably for hockey people such as yourself. We focus on the bigger picture here on Wheelhouse. Played since I could stand, started refing when I was 12, started coaching when I was 23. So while some jock sniffers want to host their shows and dull you to death with the pedantic and the esoteric, as they wish they learned to skate. I'm here to bring you some bigger picture stuff, different perspective. Frankly, I started this show because I was sick to death of being statsed to death. Yes, that's right. That's death by statsing. And whether I'm pressed into your ears or you're streaming me on your car radio as you take a road trip somewhere fun, tweet me anytime at YoVolks. Let me know what you're thinking. But if you send me jackass tweets, don't cry into your pudding if I don't answer back. Or if I say something that's not nice in return. That's not to say I'm going to back down from intellectual challenges. But your tomfoolery and your hogwash, well, that ain't going to fly with me, son. But feel free to share that pudding with me anyways. You know what we're going to talk about today? As you heard off the top, we are going to talk about stupid NHL rules. Well, I guess it's just one stupid NHL rule for now. And why goaltending in the NHL kind of sort of sucks. And I will explain that because while I understand there are some great goalies in the league... I'll explain how it could be better. But for next show, tweet me anytime. What's bugging you? What's eating you? What's catching your eye on the ice? What's catching your eye off the ice? And even if it's a tiny little blip of a comment, I will squeeze it into the show. And I'll mention your name. So just for you, at your Volks. By the way, I was flipping through Facebook the other day at some point, and some media source, a major media source, who will not be named, because we're not going to mention them on the show, had this big to-do about how Carey Price was hitting the, the face with a puck at practice. And it was this end-of-the-world title. Relax. Those masks are built custom for every goalie's face. Like, if you dropped four pounds, you would notice the difference in the cheekbone padding. That's how snug those things are. They, they mask your, you know those mud masks your girlfriend wears? They do that to their face. And then they build the mask out from there. A shot in the face probably happens twice a month. Pro goalies know how to deal with it. The only time that I would worry about a puck in the face is in warm-ups, especially in the playoffs. But in warm-ups, it's so annoying. When I coach, I always tell my young keepers that shooters are stupid, and time and time again, shooters will prove that in fact they are quite stupid. And I didn't make that theory up. It was former Leafs goaltending coach Steve McKeegan that I used to train under. He once uh, mentioned that. And once you know it, once you see it, you can't unknow it. You can't unsee it. Pre-game warm-ups are the best place 
to see stupidity at that level. And as I was saying, I get really mad when guys don't warm their goalies up or girls. Like if you're lucky in your 20 minute warm up, you get 60%, 60% of the shots wide, 20% are at your face, 5% at your nuts, and the rest barely give you a feel for the puck. And trust me, those, those players that shoot at your face or your jewels, those are the same two guys that in the dressing room will give you the death stare because you let in the first goal of the game. Rant done. Anyways, speaking of stupidity on the ice, you know, there are a lot of things that eat at me while I sit and watch games. There are. I just can't mention them all on the show. But for the most part, the NHL puts a pretty good product on the ice, night in and night out. I mean, even the Phoenix Coyotes are entertaining to watch now. Like, I had to think about, before I said that, do I really want to say this? Yes, even the Coyotes are putting good product on the ice. But you know what needs to go? It needs to change, it needs to die. That stupid bleeping delay of game rule. And here's why. Here's why. I've skated on a few pro ice surfaces in my day, and I've never once been impressed with the quality of the ice. Not once. You ask you ask a guy like Joe Thornton uh, of the San Jose Sharks. Let me say that again without, uh, you know, blurring it together. Of the San Jose Sharks. What was the best ice he ever skated on? And he'll tell you it's St. Thomas, Ontario, where he played his junior B. The NHL rinks, they're a little too warm. They're packed with breathing, sweaty bodies. The ice never quite freezes right. They shred up really quick. And chances are, because everybody's trying to save money and make an extra buck, chances are there was an NBA court on that same surface 12 hours before. And then, and then, you factor in, you've got a 225-pound dude barreling in on you with 20,000 people watching on subpar ice with the pressure of the game beaming down on you. Bam. Two minutes because you flip, you flip the puck over the boards. Come on. Give that some thought. I know 15 years ago, vets just flipped it over the glass to waste time and the ref would make the discretionary call and they want to get rid of that tricky gray area that refs used to fall into. Having refed a lot in my day, I know the new NHL wants to get rid of all of that gray area. My first day at ref school, a little quick aside here before I go back into that delay of game rule. First day at ref school, back in 1996, the head instructor pulled out the rule book and he raised it up in the air. And he said, does anybody know why they don't put hard covers on rule books? And of course, we were kids. We're looking around. I don't know. Why, why, why are there no hard covers? Just tell us. Because he said, and this is smart, the rules need to be bent once in a while to play the game. And at the time, that made sense. There was that whole, like, you know, you called a penalty in the first period against so-and-so, you let one guy off the hook, so you, you made up for it with another missed call by letting another guy off the hook. And then the games got out of hand, and if you want proof of that, just refer back to that classic Avalanche and Red Wings series back in the late 90s. And if the puck flies over the glass now, despite the fact that the ice kind of sucks, despite the fact that there's 20,000 bodies in there heating up the place, despite the fact that some massive dude is going to run your face through the glass, if the puck flies over the board, no questions asked, it's a penalty now. Well, hear me roar. Either you blow the play dead, and no matter where the puck went out of play, you pull the face off back into the defensive zone of the team who just flipped it out. That's, that's sort of a penalty. 
especially if you flip it out in the opposing opposing zone. Bring it back all the way to their end. There, there's your there's your penalty, and forbid them from doing an, uh, a line change. There. They're, they can't make a change. You flip the puck out over the board. You pull it back into your own defensive zone. Or, and there's an or for every story, or you give them a one-minute penalty. One minute. And that's it. There you go. You've served your time. In my eyes, it's no different than icing the puck and then losing the right to change your shift right after and putting the puck back in your defensive zone. I just think it's completely wrong to penalize somebody so severely for something that, especially nowadays, guys know it's a penalty. They don't want to do it. So now they're going to throw them in the box for two minutes? It's it's sort of like putting a, a bunker in the heart of a fairway on a golf course. Don't Don't penalize the player for trying to do the right thing. If you pipe a drive 300 yards straight... You land in a bunker? That's BS. And while we're on the topic of penalties and rule changes, I, I, I have another one that I think should appease the gray hairs out there. By appealing to tradition, the league wants to change goalie gear to increase scoring. Putting goaltenders at risk, potentially. Or totally causing the need to restructure an entire position and how it's been played, at least for the last 20 years but it's a it's an ongoing process from the last 100 and 100 plus years so here's some food for thought and i kind of skipped dinner before i recorded the show so thinking about food got me kind of hungry reinstate the rule that players can't come out of the box until the full two minutes is up regardless of what happens on the ice that was the, that's the way it was before Bellavo, richard jeffreyon dicky moore before those guys lit it up penalties had to, to be two minutes regardless of what happened. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? Rather than saying, okay, you come out of the box after every goal. No, you stay in there, and if guys are on fire, bam. Potentially more goals are scored. I'm not, a, I'm not totally opposed to shrinking goalie gear, but I think maybe we'll go back to the 1956 version of the game, at least that rule, before we totally change goaltending gear. Although I will say... The 1999 era of goaltending, those Brodeurs, those Waz, that was a good-sized goalie gear. But factor in as well that those guys were all using wooden sh- wooden sticks or those composite shafts with a wooden blade. They just simply didn't move the puck as fast, and they simply didn't shoot the pucks nearly as fast. So if you're going to shrink goalie gear, maybe that's something to consider too. Okay, we're going to switch gears now, and we welcome in the NHL editor of SB Nation, and also... Preacher at the First Church of Claude Giroux, one Mr. Travis Hughes. Travis, what's going on today? Hey, man, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, I laughed when I read that in your bio. Preaching at the, the, uh, the old <laughs> Church of Giroux. I like it. Um, are you going yeah. to take, take part in uh, St. Patty's Day stuff this week, or what's the, what's the deal for you? Uh, that's a good question. We'll see how the Flyers do against the Penguins on Saturday. That might be my, <laughs> that might be uh, the determining factor here. We'll see. You can drown your sorrows or celebrate. I think it's either way. You're good to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's funny that it, this falls on St. Patty's Day, and it's funny because your your bio clearly you love Claude Giroux. But I wanted to ask you if you were going to go pub crawling with one NHLer, who's the guy? That's a great question. Um, you know what? Claude Giroux actually seems like he might be pretty fun to go to the bar with, if you remember his, uh, his the summer he had two summers ago up in, in Ottawa. Ottawa. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
grabbing. I mean, you know, we shouldn't, you know, uh, <laughs> shouldn't you shouldn't grab cops on the ass? Let's be real. Should, but should you grab um, a cop's ass? No. Of all the crimes you can commit, that's one of the um, one of the funnier ones, I think. So uh, can't say it's a victimless crime, but it's a funny crime. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, you know, I think he might be on the list. Um, but that's a tough one. I, I mean. I bet you a lot of NHL players are super fun to drink with. I think that that is a, the, the definite case. But my my answer, honestly, before we, uh, we 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 got you to booked on the show, I think my honest answer was Claude Giroux, largely because of his Ottawa mm. shenanigans. Plus, his hockey chirps are pretty great. So, you know, when you see him chirping on the ice and he's calling guys pigeons yeah. and making pigeon sounds on the ice, that's the guy I want to <laughs> hang out with at the pub, too, because I think it'd just be pretty funny. Anyways, but let's let's talk about the, the, the Flyers some more. Um, they've been on a, a huge tear lately, um, sort of pulling down that wild card spot in the East. They've they've just reclaimed it, at least for now, because uh, things are getting heated up. Um, you know, Michael Roffel, he's got his eight points in, in six games. Um, he's been a definite stud coming down the stretch here. Who else on the team do you think has been a beast? You know, they, they've gotten a lot of, um, you know, the last month or so when they've really turned it on here. Um, you know, to get back in the playoff race and into a playoff spot at this point. You know, they they have really gotten contributions kind of from all up and down the lineup, and that's a big reason why they're in the position they are. Uh, you mentioned Raffle. Raffle's been a big key piece on that line. Um, you know, he, he, he's a guy that he's getting points right now, but even all season, he's a guy that, you know, he, he, he creates space for, for his line mates and, you know, his more skilled line mates in, in many cases. Um, but he's, he's, been a, he's been a formidable top six forward for that reason, you know, he'll, Get in the corner and bang and get that puck loose and get it out to a, you know, Claude Giroux or, or somebody up that up that ilk. So, um, you know, he's been super valuable. I think that Braden Shen has really stepped up lately. Mm-hmm. Um, really in 2016 so far since the calendar turned in over into January, he's been really solid. And um, you know, I think we're all kind of cautiously optimistic that he's finally becoming the player that, you know, I mean, when the Flyers acquired him back in 2011 from the Kings in that uh, in that trade. Um, that Mike Richards trade, you know, everybody thought he was, you know, pe- people were calling him the best prospect in hockey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's definitely taken some time. Um, but here we are five years later, and I think it's he's really starting to, to turn into that player on a consistent basis. He's been a really valuable player for the Flyers. So, uh, but really, I mean, they're, get, they're getting, you know, they're, they're, I think one of their biggest problems, and, and I guess their biggest problem is still defense. I mean, I think that's evident to anybody yeah. who looks at the roster. But, um, you know, they, they have... I think one of the other big big issues has been, you know, for a long time there early in the season, they were basically a two line team. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the bottom six were just getting just getting wrecked every night, yeah. um, no matter the opponent, and it was brutal. And you know, those guys have really stepped up and played really well that that whole bottom six unit. So, you know, to be able to do this without without uh, without Troncaturia for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, about a month. Oh, we seem to have lost Travis. Uh... We're gonna, we're gonna try to get him back on the line. We just, here we are, 2016, Travis. We still can't make a phone call. They want to send people to Mars and to, to the moon. <laughs> Good luck talking to them. We can't even have a conversation from. I think you're in Atlantic City to to Toronto. I, I'm in I'm in Washington. I'm in Washington D.C. You're in Washington. But, you know, okay. close enough. Even better. <laughs> even better. Um, so, anyways, yeah. you had me at Couturier. Yeah. So, so yeah. So they were. You know, the Flyers have been playing so well lately, and, and they, um, you know, by and large, have done it. You know. For a bit there, they did it without Jean Couturier, who is who is a vital piece uh, on that second line as, as their center. 
Um, and, you know, over the last eight games or so, they've done it without Jake Voracek. So, um, you know, to miss two of your top six guys like that, kind of back-to-back with injuries, and to still be playing at the level they have been over the last month and a half or so um, is extremely, extremely impressive. Voracek's been a stud. And also, you know, the, that tandem and net of Mason and Neuber, they've just been crushing it 8-1-1 one, and one over the last 10. Do you, have a, do you have a preference kind of going forward down the road of who you'd like to see in the net? Are you cool with it being split right now? I think it's fine being split, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, both guys have been um, completely fantastic. I mean, they were really, you know, if you look at their numbers, and I think like Steve Mason has something like a 916 save percentage or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you kind of break that down into even strength and uh, – special teams and he's been he's been fantastic um at even strength i think he's one of the top five goaltenders in the league both of them are, are both you know top five goaltenders in the league at even strength so mm-hmm. um you know that's been fantastic um but you know those so those overall numbers are hurt by by penalty kill and early in the year the flyers penalty kill was, was just brutal and you know that kind of got reflected in the in the goalie numbers so um you know, uh, overall, though, I mean, those two guys have been great all year, uh, both of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a good problem to have. You know, some people will call that a controversy. Some people will call it a, just a just a, a luxury. So yeah. I think the Flyers are kind of in that boat where, you know, if one guy goes down, they have another guy. But, you know, they can kind of also just mix them in and make sure not, neither of them get necessarily all that tired. And You know, I think it'll be Steve Mason's net in the postseason. But, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be fine no matter who's in the net. You know, it's funny you say that because a lot of people will always tell you it's a controversy. I mean, you see it everywhere. It's like, oh, so-and-so played the last 10 games and now they're out and they've they've not been playing well. So the backups, he's really stepped up. It's a controversy. It's like yeah. the the small hockey mind doesn't see that as a luxury, especially in the, in the playoff stretch when guys are playing, you know, high stakes games. It's high mental capacity. You're, you're, you're working your ass off out there. So a night off here and there, or if you're bumped and bruised or whatever it might be, is such a luxury and people people fail to see that for what it is. Now you mentioned the whole team has sort of come together like the before they were just sort of a two-line team and and when you're a two-line team you're you're very susceptible to any injuries and then you're kind of screwed. How yeah. much is how, how much stability has Dave Hackstall brought to the bench just in general? Yeah. Cuz there are, Philly is a is a revolving door of coaches and and suddenly Hackstall steps in and it seems like they have, you know, a captain at the at the helm now. Yeah, you know, I think that they definitely, it definitely took some time for, you know, both for Hackstall to get used to the NHL game, of course. I mean, he's a guy who had no professional coaching experience before he came here this year. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people thought that as, saw that as a negative. Honestly, I, I, I kind of saw it as a positive. I think it's a yeah, good thing. Yeah, totally. I think that, you know, <laughs> we, we get into this mentality where it's like the same 35 guys yeah, who are coaching yeah. NHL teams. And it's so silly, right? Yeah, like John Tortorella gets the Columbus job. And it's like, <laughs> okay, like, there's really, is there really not a, not a better option here? Yeah. Um, no, no offense to John Tortorella no. or anything. I mean, I think he's he's a fine coach for what he is, and he certainly has, um, you know, his mentality about him. But, um, but you know, I think Dave Haxtell, he definitely proved himself at North, at North Dakota. And, you know, North Dakota, and I don't know how familiar you are with the college game, but that is a program that, you know, people call that rink up there in North Dakota. You know, it's basically NHL size. I think it's like 16,000 seats or something. Um, that, that, it's a facility that's an NHL facility for all intents and purposes. And that's a program that under Dave Haxtell went to the Frozen Four, I want to say, like, I, I forget the exact numbers, like seven times or something. Yeah. Um, he they, he won know, one they, or two? No, he well, so we actually never won one. And, that, and people in North Dakota were getting... Uh, no, he, shockingly, he did not win um, 
the Frozen Four, uh, the national championship as a head coach. And, um, you know, a lot of people there were were pretty, were pretty, uh, pretty tired of it. But, you know, I mean, you look at his resume and it's just super impressive. Yeah, and in a uh, game where consistency is so key, you know, you're getting back to the finals, you're getting back to the finals. It comes down to a lot of puck luck too, but the consistency is definitely there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm actually just kind of peeking at his... Uh, <laughs> at his resume right now in North Dakota. And yeah, he made the Frozen Four in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2011, 2014, and 2015. <laughs> See, and I welcome, so, I welcome this change in. Like, I, I hope they, they start to usher out some of these old gray-haired dudes that, that are that old men- mentality of the old mantra of the NHL. And like Mike, yeah. Mike Babcock comes out of the Canadian University program too. And like, he's sort of just a different different stroke for, for the same folks. And it's, it's clearly yeah. paying off. Right. So I, I welcome in this era of, of college guys coming up and getting their shot. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing interesting about Haxtell, and, and I don't know if you're able to really translate this, but his teams were always known for, you know, really stepping up in the last half of the season and kind of, you know, this time of year around playoff time and, and really kind of, kind of putting their best foot forward this time of year. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's, if that's something that translates to the NHL level. Um, obviously, you know, the NCAA is completely different. You only play like 40 games on, on a, on a good year when you go deep, um, you know, 50 games or, or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's, so, it, and you're, you're obviously, you know, you're not, you're not a professional athlete. So it's, it is very different, but I, I do wonder if there's something in his mentality as a coach that really kind of gets teams ramped up this time of year. Cause you're certainly seeing it with the Flyers. I think that part of it is certainly, you know, the team is just getting used to him. You know, they're, they're, his system's really starting to, starting to fit in. Um, but the other side of it, you know, very, very easily could be just something kind of in his coaching DNA that gets the best out of his players. Time of year. Well, we'll switch, we'll switch gears a bit um, away from the Flyers, but it's interesting that you say all that because that whole team mentality, I'm watching the Penguins, they're neck and neck with the Flyers, but they don't have a whole team firing right now. They certainly don't have two goalies playing like Mason and Neuvirth. And then the Red Wings... I love the Red Wings. I love their I love their tradition of just being awesome year after year. But I think <laughs> I think I think that's going to run out sooner or later. I think Philly is sort of on a tear right now, and if they can maintain that, then they'll be they'll be a strong strong seed for sure come playoff time. Yeah, I mean the, the Red Wings have made the playoffs um, since I think the last time they missed the playoffs was before the Berlin Wall fell. Yeah, so it's been a bit. They were um, still they the playoffs stealing every players. once in a while. Yeah, they were still stealing players from Russia. When the Berlin Wall right. was up and they were making the playoffs and that hasn't stopped since then. And that eventually comes to an end. They're getting older. They're, it's just a matter of what it is, right? You can't sustain that. But I hope they do. Right. It's amazing. But you, you want to retool. You want to rebuild. Zetterberg's getting older. Datsuk's getting older. you got to start to replenish some of those guys in that lineup. Yeah. Um, speaking of old and tired, uh, the outdoor classic, the winter classics. Um, you recently penned a piece sort of saying uh, some ideas to sort of get these things up and running and to sort of like, I guess rub the dust off them so to speak um i'm not going to go through all of your ideas but like what do you would be what what do you think would be the top two or three venues that would be like must see television for where they're where they're situated yeah so so my whole premise is that like look like i get that the nhl is going to do the stadium series and they're just going to put a put a game in a stadium and rake in the money Mm -hmm. um they can do that several times a year that's fine but you know it you have to kind of balance it, you know, where like, yeah, like they might be fine just kind of making that money. And obviously they sell, you know, they say they have five outdoor games in a year and they sell them all out and they sell merchandise and they, you know, those games are a really big deal inside those markets and inside those fan bases of the teams that are playing. Yeah. But, you know, when you, 
you, you want to try yeah you have to use the it, it, this is a, these outdoor games and the winter classic in particular are the signature events of the league um they're they're it's a great idea to start with um and you know you really need to kind of step it up and really um go after that that market of sports fans who just wants to see cool stuff mm-hmm. and you know i think that you can only do outdoor games between the same several teams in generic MLB or NFL stadiums yeah. so many times, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this past year, you know, they're just playing at Gillette Stadium. Like, th- that place, with all due respect to the New England Patriots, like, that place has no, like, allure. It's not like a, it's not like a must-see venue. It's not so Lambeau. My whole thing it's is not like, old Yankee Stadium. Right, yeah. Right, right, exactly. It's not Fenway Park. It's not Wrigley Field. So, mm-hmm. um, and so even my, then, that's my whole theory... I'm cutting you off. Yeah, right. Well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it, you know, it, it's it's just not it, it's not it's just not big enough. Um, so I think that they really need to kind of think outside the box in terms of the venue. Mm-hmm. Um, one suggestion, and I, I put this in the story, was actually the first one I put in the story was a NASCAR track. Like if you're gonna, um, you know, if if you're gonna <laughs> look, the NHL and the Southern Expansion, I think by and large it has worked overall pretty well. And that's a topic for another day, but. You know, if you really want to, like, piss off Don Cherry and, <laughs> and people north of the border, no offense to you, Jeff. Um, That's okay. You know, you put you take a, you take the Nashville Predators and the Carolina Hurricanes and you put them in Bristol Motor Speedway. I would or, watch that. You know, you, it would be awesome, right? It mm. would, you know, it would, ca- it would capture the imagination of a different sort of sports fan. Um, it would be just a really cool event. And I think that, um, you know, that's one game I would really like to see. Um, you know, and then kind of beyond that, I think you have to think even more outside the box in terms of like, I don't know, like go out to like, uh, go out to a national park and like play on a pond actually. And like, look, you might not be able to get like, like a ton of, a ton of fans in there. You know, you're not going to be able to sell 50,000 tickets to a game like that. But if you're playing out on a lake with mountains as your backdrop, People mm-hmm. are going to watch that on TV, and you're going to make up for it in terms of the way you generate that interest. So, and for the most um, part, sports or sports is it's mostly for the the television now. When you like the, yeah. the live event is never as great as you want it to be. So, if you can have something yeah. that's just like aesthetically stunning on your television, yeah. like a mountainous backdrop, that would be amazing. Right. And then for the people who right. are there, as you say, it's totally a refresher. It's totally for those guys who are, who are playing. You know. It's sort of like Groundhog Day when you're in the pros. Every day is a cookie cutter day, except for you're playing a different logo at night. Same same places, same faces. So if you can if you can step out, it's a bit refreshing for the teams involved. Mm-hmm. It's really key for the fans in that area. Like I don't care where the All Star Game is, but when the All Star Game is sort of in my hometown, I'm kind of like, oh, it's here now. So for for that yeah. local fan, it's amazing. And as you said, like you take the Southern Expansion and you put it on NASCAR. That's a whole different. That's a whole different uh, set of eyeballs that probably wouldn't have watched it otherwise. But in terms of growing the game, it, it, I always say hockey's a lot like golf. If if you if you've never played golf and you're watching golf on television, it's very 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 boring. But the minute yeah. you've picked up a club and you realize how damn hard it is to hit a ball straight and consistently straight, then you say like, oh, I I understand now what what's happening on this. And as soon as you are at a hockey game watching a game, and as soon as you've you've stood up on some steel blades and realized how hard it is to do it, especially at breakneck speeds, there's a whole different level of appreciation for it. So I think I think definitely yeah. something like that like would be really cool. It'd be really hard for the for the fan to watch on a flat track such as NASCAR, but if they could pull it off, it'd be awesome. 
yeah, that, that's and that, that was that was kind of my entire point with it. You know, just like change it up, try to get it in front of different people, and, and try to get some get some energy back into it because you know I I think that you know it, the Winter Classic and, and the outdoor games are still extremely cool, but it's just not enough anymore to really capture the capture yeah. the everyday sports fan. And and the, the easy way to do that is by just playing in really cool places. You got to put some hot sauce on it. Travis, exactly. it's been an awesome chat, man. I love having you on the show. Our very first episode here of Wheelhouse. You've been a wicked first guest. Um, I know you. I know you're a Philly fan, but as a hockey guy, I'm sure you're excited just going down the stretch in general. So, um, here's my here's my theory. Whether the whether the Flyers do well or they do poorly, it's still an excuse to celebrate St. Patrick's Day in my books. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll take that into consideration this weekend. Awesome, man. Talk to you soon. Off the top of the show, I tease the fact that. There was a certain element that was killing young goaltenders these days. And you know, a bit more about me, I was a reporter uh, for Hockey Night, well no, I was a reporter for TSN and then a producer for Hockey Night in Canada. And then I left because being broke and living downtown in one of the world's biggest cities kind of sucked. So I became a copywriter in, in an ad agency. And there's an adage in the ad game, and that is something of the effect of, you know, page two of Google search is the best place to hide a dead body. Because nobody looks there. And I got to thinking the other night, that's kind of what's happening to what would be great goaltenders. Think about it for a second. I mean, really quickly, who were the backup goaltenders for Team Sweden and Team USA in the last Olympics? Think, 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 think. It's hard to say think that many times. Okay, it was Jonas Gustafsson and Jonas Enroth for the Swedes. And in the US net, it was Ryan Miller and Jimmy Howard. Slow clap if you knew that, by the way. Tweet me if you knew it. I'll give you a, a favorite. I'm using this as an example of a macro view of, of, the, of the game in itself. Chances are you had to think about who I, who I mentioned there. Every guy I mentioned there, though, is pretty good. My point is this. We remember the starters. The worst place you can be if you're attendee is the second spot on a good team, especially a pro team. Now, if I'm the GM, I want my number two guy I want him carrying the load in the league below me. That could go further. You could have your guy that's up and coming. Go do a year in Finland. Go do a year in Sweden. You want a guy who's a gamer. Tim Thomas. Not pretty. Actually, he was ugly. Not himself, his style. Crushed it in the Finnish Elite League. Crushed it in the AHL for Providence. And when he was ready to get his chance for the Bruins, he was ready for that jump. He knew who he was. He wasn't trying to fit into a box. He was an ugly goalie that knew how to stop pucks. James Reimer, ECHL kid. Toronto media blasted that kid every day. They blasted him. And every day he came back with a smile on his face because he knew deep down he was confident. And where do you think he learned that? He learned that in the ECHL as the number one guy. If you're stuck as the second best guy but you play 20 games a year well how are you going to progress and I hope Reimer and the Sharks do really well in the coming years PS and I hope that that Reimer he's not a jerk but I hope that if he ever does do one jerk thing I hope it's that he succeeds in, in San Jose and comes back and sticks it in the faces of every nearsighted flat-footed pot-bellied know-it-all journalist north of the border Goaltending is a confidence game. It's a game management position, but it's a confident position. 
You have to learn to be a number one goaltender. And I, again, you're probably asking, who is this guy telling me what I have to know about goaltending? I spent 15 years in the pipes, and trust me, I had some bad years. Clearly not very many great years either, because here I am doing a show and not playing pro somewhere. But you learn a thing or three back there. And you don't do that by being a highly touted backup. See Vesa Toskala, Jonathan Bernier, coincidentally both Leaf guys. Former Flyers tender, Michael Layton, he learned to be the number one in that magical playoff run back in 2010. And I wish I'd brought this up with, with Travis, but the time just sort of went by. Brian Boucher, Ray Emery fell by the wayside. So they pulled Layton out of nowhere off the scrap heap. And the dude played like a barn wall. So here's where I'm going with it. So long as we're not in a playoff situation, I'm putting my 1B as the starter in the minors. And when my 1A needs a night off, I'm going to recall my 1B. And if 1A goes down in the middle of a game, I mean, if it's a tie game and he goes down due to injury, well, that kind of sucks. But when's that ever really going to happen? And then you got your 1C guy there who's going to pull up, you know, do his thing. But if he gets pulled from a game, if your 1A gets pulled, chances are the game's over anyways. So throw your 1C in there. He'll mop the game up and go from there. Being the strongest goalie on the bench helps nobody. You don't learn to be an NHL starter by being the 1B. Hey, kid, you're going to sit 60 of the next 82 games, but don't worry. We'll stack the pressure on you huge when we need you. Oh, and if you fail, well, guess what? 1C, 1D, I guess they're not 1s anymore. 2A, 2B, they're down there ready to take your place. And then all the media pundits, they can all whine and say there's no good goalie prospects. Or they could say, oh, so-and-so just, you know, he came up, he was such a high-touted prospect, and he failed. He just couldn't handle the pressure. Well, no, he just hasn't had the chance to be the number one for a while. Same can be said for NFL quarterbacks. Jeff Garcia, Joe Theismann, Warren Moon, all NFL greats who honed their craft in the CFL before jumping into the big show. And, by the way, CFL is Canadian Football League PS. Theismann won a Super Bowl. Warren Moon, Hall of Famer, they learned to be number one after they were deemed to be not good enough. These are the pro leagues, and they are so, so, so good now that only a small percentage of guys can walk in and claim a spot, like Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby. There's a small percentage. For goalies, though, you've got to learn the position, and then you eventually walk into it and then you earn your stripes the master as they say is the beginner who simply kept beginning remember those words as you walk through life as well and as i said 15 years of of time between the pipes good days and bad now i coach and for any keepers who's been cut from a triple a team well go be the best double a goalie be so good they can't ignore you anyways that music marks the conclusion of the show Hope you had a good time. We're going to talk about all kinds of things hockey on here. All of our guests will keep you up up to date with relevant facts and all that kind of stuff. And in the meantime, tweet me at YoVolks. Share the show with your friends. And thanks again for having me in. This is Wheelhouse. We'll talk to you real soon.